The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is... Not on. <laughs> Live radio, yay. There, does that sound like it's on? All right, let's try the other one. Is that one on? <laughs> yay. Hi, welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, where we are having some microphone challenges this afternoon, but Super Engineer Mike fixed them because he always fixes them. Never gone through an entire program without my mic working. So, yay, Mike. So, you're listening to Real Life Real Estate, where this week, as every week, we are striving to be your public radio source for the information, advice, strategies, motivation, and inspiration you need to start or grow your own successful real estate investing business. And today, we are going to talk about some lessons from the real estate bubble. Yep, going to go back and look at that and then look forward and say, what happens if that happens again? And a couple of quick announcements first. Uh, If you're in the greater Cincinnati area, do not forget that this Saturday and Sunday is Cincinnati RIA's uh, two-day event in conjunction with creative finance expert Dykes Bodiford. That class is... Well, I sort of say very nearly full, but honestly, it only held 70 people and then 81 signed up and then we got a bigger room at the hotel. So now there's some seats left again and uh, it's uh, an event you want to attend if you want to know more about how to buy and sell houses without banks. You can get more information on that event at CincinnatiRIA.com. That's CincinnatiRIA.com. My guest today is Scott Benjamin, author of Writing the Bubble. The world of housing is a wild ride. He is a faculty member teaching entrepreneurship and strategy at Florida Tech in Melbourne, Florida. But the PhD came second after a long career in real estate investing that Unfortunately, started in 2001 and came very close to ending in 2008. Scott turned that adventure into practically a day-by-day diary that became the book Writing the Bubble, which is, by the way, available at Amazon.com. And so if you decide that you need to get a hold of this this tome, it's 388 pages, 388 pages of real estate adventures. You can do that by going to wmkvfm.org and clicking the 
Amazon button, and that way a little portion of your purchase goes to support public radio here on WMKV. Uh, Scott is joining us by phone from his home in Melbourne. Scott, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Scott, are you there? I am indeed. Oh, there he is. Okay. I thought I heard you breathing a minute ago. Okay. Um, Very good. I appreciate you joining us uh, today, and I appreciate you um, memorializing all of the horrible stuff I remember from 2006, 2007, 2008 in your book, Writing the Bubble. Uh, what what was it that um, inspired you to put all this stuff on paper? Because it's not all a happy story. Well, when I began uh, the book, which was 2001, I, I hadn't really done anything in real estate. I had always wanted to be in real estate, but never knew how to get started. And a lot of my friends were in the same boat. So I said, as I teach myself this business, I'm just going to take notes. And uh, if I'm successful, the book gets published. And if I'm not, then, you know, I've got a nice uh, diary of notes. And, uh, you know, the first couple of years from 2001 to, to 2006 were, were fantastic years for us. I mean, I, I got a business partner and we were flipping houses and renting houses and doing a lot of the same things that you've been doing now for you know, for 25 years, and it just turned into more like a, uh, a story of, of anguish as the market started to collapse. And I said, you know, I'm going to keep taking notes. This is a really unique market to be in the middle. And I, I started to write when things weren't going well and when real estate wasn't treating me great. Um, but, if, you know, at the end of the book, it has a happy ending because we had a, a large deal that I'd worked on for six years close. And allowed me to kind of pursue, uh, you know, I'm a college professor now, and I still do a ton of investing, but I, I real estate was really good to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, as we progress here during this hour, uh, we're going to take a look at your view on uh, how the market compares now to in those, sure. you know, the heyday there of the market. And Maybe address a little bit the the current talk of oh there's another real estate bubble developing and so on. But first, I think it's uh, important that that you you tell the story here because you started out like a whole lot of people do, uh, very excited about real estate, very excited about having your own business, very excited about uh, a, a particular goal which which was two million dollars. You wanted to have two million dollars in wealth mm-hmm. in equity within ten years. And that right. was that was way back in two thousand and one. So, uh, how how did you start that process? Well, you know what a lot of startup uh, real estate investors don't realize is that it takes a long time to get that that first deal. And um, you know, the book it took six months before I identified the first project. And you know, I overanalyzed everything. I was afraid. Um, I was looking for capital. Um, so, you know, that, that, that kind of thing evolved with, with finding that first deal. Um, and then as things progressed, um, over the years, it became much easier, you know, like with anything else, as you learn the process, you can develop some strategies to find some properties and, um, now I forgot where I was going with well, the was thought. It, what were you looking? Were you were you were you looking to start with flipping or renting or what was the oh. like number one goal? Okay, so number one goal was flipping. Um, I didn't have a job. I had some income coming in from some other, you know, uh, activities that I was doing, but I, I didn't have a full time job. 
So I saw flipping as a, an opportunity to get quick cash. Uh, you know, if we could turn a house and make $15,000, um, I needed that money. I had uh, two young kids and a wife, and I really needed to put food on the table. Um, a couple of years into flipping, and it was good, and started to build some momentum, uh, I met a friend who told me about real estate and said, real wealth is created by owning rental properties letting them appreciate, and then you'll have some real wealth. So I created a blended model where I would flip a certain amount a year, and I think at the time it was about 12 to 15 houses that I was flipping, but I would also keep some of the properties that I would have typically flipped and put tenants in them. I created a rental portfolio. Um, and, and I tell you what, that, that was hard to do because when you put in the sweat equity to fix them up, uh, you want that cash, and by renting them, I was leaving all that equity in the deal. But at the end of the day, you know, we did really well with a lot of these rentals that we sold five, seven years down the road, and we cashed out on on those. So the the strategy evolved. It was really flipping at first to put food on the table, and then it became rentals. Uh, and then to achieve that goal of $2 million, um, I knew I had to get into bigger projects as well. So I taught myself how to subdivide land. Um, I made a, a lot of money with lots, subdividing them and selling lots to builders. I uh, bought a small office property, uh, rehabbed that and filled that one up with tenants, got into taking industrial land and rezoning it. So really any method of, of uh, investing in real estate I, I did. And it was a combination of all of that that led to ultimately achieving that goal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, very good. When we come back from the break, we're going to get your perspective on what started to happen in 2006, sure. 2007, 2008, and uh, what that little wild ride there was like. We're also going to take calls from anyone who's got questions for Scott Benjamin at 877-772-9658. That's 877-772-9658. You can also go to our webpage, realliferealestate.com, and send your question via email from that page. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. You can always keep in touch with Real Life Real Estate through our website at realliferealestate.com, where there's almost always a special offer for listeners of Real Life Real Estate. Uh, Today, it is the opportunity to attend a free webinar tomorrow about how to interview wholesale sellers Uh, We will be talking about how to go through the interview form at what points you might want to get out of the conversation because it's clear that you do not, in fact, have a seller, what things are really, really, really important to ask, and everyone who attends will get a free copy of the seller lead sheet. You can register for that free webinar for Real Life Real Estate listeners by going to realliferealestate.com. You'll see it right there at the top of the page while you're there. Check out our many, 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 I tried to count them the other day and I got bored after about 120 podcasts of prior shows uh, that you can download and listen to at your leisure. Again, that's realliferealestate.com. Talking today to Scott Benjamin, author of Writing the Bubble, The World of Housing is a Wild Ride, which chronicles his adventures in the real estate world from beginner at 
uh, in 2001 up through the time when the market just sort of crashed and burned and then beyond. Um, Now, Scott, while that was going on, we all knew that the market was good, but we didn't really know that it was weirdly good <laughs> like 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 this was yeah. an unusual right. situation until uh, late in the process at, at what point did you look up and say you know what something's something's going wrong and it's time to make some adjustments so you know you listen to the the real estate uh, pundits along the way and, and even early in the process everyone was predicting the end but it didn't seem to happen it kept progressing on so we kept buying properties and Things were appreciating and going really well. So for me, it was around 2005. Even though the market itself didn't technically crash till closer to 2007, around the end of 2005, um, it started to slow. There was some indication. So I didn't buy as many flip properties in 2006. I really pulled back. Um, because I could see that things were slowing down. And it, like you said, everybody knew that this was kind of a bubble, but um, nobody was really sure what was going to happen next. Nobody could have predicted the complete implosion that happened in the market. So for me, you know, looking back on it, uh, I was doing a lot of new construction where I was buying raw land, subdividing it, and then paying a builder to build a new construction house and the process was long it was 12 to 18 months and and when the market started to collapse uh, my hands were tied it was it was so um, so much pain to watch the market collapse and know that you had product that wasn't going to be ready for six months Mm -hmm. Um, so you know it was yeah that was tough times and like I said I think I saw it coming and it, you know, that's, that's what's interesting about chronicling things in the book is I can look back at the notes that I took and I can see beginning in late 2005, early 2006 that, um, the writing was starting to be formed on the wall. And then it was just taking notes of how, you know, I expected to sell a house, say, for 500,000, but by the time it was ready to be sold, the market was at 450. And by the time I could get a contract, the market was at 400. And, you know, everybody was just hemorrhaging money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And tell me, tell me how it was that you were paying for these things. Oh, that's a that's an interesting question. So, uh, we had a lot of equity saved. We were very good about one thing. If I was to make a recommendation to folks, uh, it is you know really to protect the equity that you have and be very cautious about you know, taking your rental portfolio and leveraging that equity um, to 100% if you don't have to. And um, at the time, we bought right, we, we repaired things cheaply, and we would have net worth equity in a lot of properties. So we established some lines of credit um, using all the equity that, that I had accumulated over the years in these, in these rentals. So that was the first thing that we did was we, we used these lines of credit. And unfortunately, a lot of that ran out. Um, and then we went to friends and family, and that's another mistake. You know, I, again, I chronicled all these lessons, but I borrowed from friends and family to pay a lot of this debt. And, um, again, we just kept accumulating debt. We had a few big projects that sold. One was a, a, a piece of land that turned into four lots, 
And all of that profit went to pay off friends and family. And, you know, uh, some deals took years for us to earn enough just to give a lot of that money back. Um, at the end of the day, we were able to make everybody whole on what we borrowed, but we, we were really uh, some of the luckier participants back then because a lot of my friends uh, closed up shop, leaving massive debts uh, to people that they owed. But um, I, you know, being prudent with the rental portfolio was, was really important. We ended up having a lot of equity in a lot of rentals, and we tapped a lot of that to, to keep the flipping and the home building going mm-hmm. when things turn sour. Mm-hmm. That's a good question, though. Yeah. Well, and that's, and that's, uh, um, of course, I read the book, so I knew where you got the money, but the, the, uh, the, the key, uh, point there was that, you know, folks who folks who have heard stories about the about people who got stuck in the crash mostly imagine that what happened is you stopped being able to make money. But the reality is a lot of people were in the position of having friends, family, private lenders. So, you know, individual human beings that were owed money that they could not make good on. And so it wasn't just, you know, oh, I'm going to walk away from a Citibank mortgage, right? I'm going to walk away yeah. from Bank of yeah. America. I'm going to walk away from PNC. This was, you know, for a lot of people, this was, I have my mother's retirement money. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely preaching to the choir here. I had my mother's retirement money and my brother's investment money and my friend's money. And I just, I could not walk away from that kind of a debt. Um you know, the three F's, you know, I always tell people that they want to get involved in real estate. Everybody says go to friends, family, and fools first, um, because those are where you can get your money. But when things are going great, it's wonderful. And like my mother's retirement and my friend's retirement, they were getting good returns from us. As a hard money lender, they were getting good returns. But when things went sour, I didn't want to ever have to say I lost that money. So yeah, you're right. That's the tough time when the market collapsed and the bubble burst. Is a lot of people couldn't pay back their friends and family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, excluding those those you know last few years when things were you know the the the, the, the market actually officially dropped off in 2005. That was when the number of sales and the prices started dropping, but it didn't implode until 2007 when all the subprime lenders suddenly went out of business and thus financing was not available yeah. anymore. But comparing the years earlier, let's say 2001 to 2004 to right now, was yeah. it easier or harder to do business then than it was now, than it is now? All right. So... Uh, I would say you're seeing some similarities for sure. Uh, and I, uh, so I, I, I'll just tell you a little sidebar. I, I went back to school in 2007 to 2011 so that I could get a, a PhD to teach college, which I, I love to do. So I really got out of real estate for, you know, between 2011. I didn't buy a single house until last year. And now you're beginning to see some of the bubblicious things coming back. Um, so I flipped seven houses last year. I settled on one on Monday of this week. I bought four lots uh, that I'm going to build new construction. I, I think you're beginning to see not, uh, I'm hoping not a bubble, but you're, you're in the early stages, I believe, of, of a nice 
real estate market. You know, you're seeing a, a, a nice growing, really a steadily growing market. It's not spiking, but it's steadily growing. So I do think that there is some ways for investors to make money over the next, and I don't certainly don't want to predict the time frame, but three to five years of cautious, optimistic investment. I think it, you're similar to that 2001 to 2004 phase. Um, every deal that I did last year, we, we did really well on. Um, I think you can still buy right. Right now, the house that I settled on Monday um, was an estate sale, and it certainly needs work and sweat equity, but I don't feel like I'm cutting the margins thin. I think there's money to be made. Um, I do think the banks are not where they were in 2001, though. The lending has not gotten out of control. It's very difficult still, especially for newbies to start up, to, to qualify for bank funding exclusively. But I tell you what, I'm starting to see them loosen the purse strings over the last 12 months. And now I'm getting calls from the, the local bank here saying, hey, do you need money? Are you buying rentals? We were looking to lend. So some similarities for sure, but plenty of opportunity. I mean, mm-hmm. it's very exciting right now for me. Mm-hmm. And for our for our listeners in the uh, California market, we should we should probably say it's the, appreci- uh, the appreciation has been slow and steady every place except where you are, where it's going crazy. And y'all are in, a middle, uh, in the in the throes of another bubble here, but you should know that because you do that every fifteen years out there. And but, if you have any. And- if you have any South Florida, Miami listeners, they're seeing the same things down there. I mean, Miami is has really been off the hook with appreciation, and it is resembling a bubble. Um, but, you know, in other areas of the country, I'm familiar with the mid-Atlantic region quite frequently, and, you know, they're, they're slow and steady. Mm-hmm. You know, they've had a nice appreciation. It's not out of control. Um, so I think there's opportunities out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We keep seeing these national statistics come out from – the NAR and Zillow and everybody who publishes statistics that are saying, oh, the median house price just exceeded 2006 levels. And so I went back and did a little bit of actual research on our market here in Cincinnati. And yeah. it's uh, it's up 11% since the bottom of the market. So about 2% a year, which is standard appreciation for Cincinnati. That's, you know, that's what we've always said yeah, for 25 years, for 2% general, a year. Yeah, generally, that's on the low side. I mean, I think I've seen national uh, housing appreciation is uh, just over 5%. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like a 60-year historical term. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, at, at 2%, you're, it's behaving like a market should behave, mm-hmm. you know? And, and there's money to be made when that's the, when that's the case. It's just a little scary when it's a situation like uh, musical chairs, when you know that the market is going to collapse, you're just not sure when. And and right now, I don't see that. Right now, I still feel confident we've got a, a nice, healthy market. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very good. We're going to take another quick break, after which we will start answering some of these listener questions that have come in through our website at realliferealestate.com. You can also give us a call with any questions at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is Scott Benjamin, author of Writing the Bubble, available on Amazon.com. If you go to wmkvfm.org and click the Amazon button, and order it that way. You'll be, without even paying one dime more, making a contribution to 
public radio here on WMKV through Amazon's program that they do with nonprofit organizations. We are talking today about Scott's adventures during and after the real estate bubble, which he has chronicled in this book, Writing the Bubble. We're also taking your calls at 877-772-9658 and also emails. You go to realliferealestate.com, click the button that says ask a question, hit the send button. It's, It's very useful if you tell us where you're writing from, because sometimes that changes the answers to questions. Uh, But we will get that via email, as we did with Karen from Cincinnati, who really has more of a comment than a question. She says, let me say something in favor of the real estate bubbles. I noticed that in my neighborhood, a lot of investors were investing a lot of money into our area. When it was more readily available, we saw a lot of people putting money into new roofs, siding, windows, etc. I don't look forward to any more out-of-control pricing, but I sure look back fondly on the days when it seemed like every house in my neighborhood was being renovated. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thought. Uh, Investors want to put together a product that will be most appealing for the market. And I know when I get into a project, I do a... Um, a lot of exterior work, whether it's roof, landscaping, painting. So, yeah, that's an interesting comment because it's true. When the market's good, your investors are definitely fixing up some of those houses. Mm-hmm. And it was a good observation because I know a lot of folks, uh, they, they, they don't like the idea of investors being in their neighborhoods. They say, like, that's not right. (laughs) It's not fair. They bought that house for nothing, and then they sold it for all of this money. And yet when the investor drops, you know, $25,000, $30,000, into the property, they do appreciate the before and after of what that property looked like. And, um, you know, in most of the country, I think it's it's safe to say that you're going to start seeing that again. I There's a few areas that I visit where there's still, you know, a lot of board ups, a lot of um, I mean, you can really you can really see the, the boards coming off the houses and the money starting to go into them again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, another benefit from when you've got investors putting money into these neighborhoods is uh, if you've got a neighborhood that hasn't really had anything sold, you know, in the in a year, it's hard really to, for the comps to continue to rise. But if you've got some multiple sales in a good market, um, you get to see that that average sales price, that dollar per square foot go up every time one sells. Um, and that's good for everybody. I mean, if you're driving up the prices, your primary residence can actually increase a little bit when you get some of that investor activity fixing up these board up. So mm-hmm. it's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. All right. Before we get into where where you are now, because I know a lot of stuff has happened since 2008, uh, tell, us, tell us what that last year or two was like, because, you know, a, a, a lot of folks, as you mentioned, just had to walk away from everything. What happened in your business? How were you spending 2007 and 2008? So uh, it was miserable. I mean, I'll be honest with you. That, those were some really, really hard years. Uh, everything that I had on the books that was being sold, um, I was losing money on. So, uh, you know, getting up the energy to, to get to work every day was, was not as much fun as the early days. Um, but you know, it also, it forced me to be more creative. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. We, we, 
there was a piece of land that we bought that we were going to turn into townhouses because we were uh, at that time we were building in Baltimore and row houses were were quite popular. So um, we originally decided to put some townhouses, but when that market collapsed and nobody was willing to buy townhouses, um, you know, I had to be more creative. What can I use this piece of land for? Because right now there's no market. And we had to change its use to apartments because those folks still needed a place to live. The folks that were getting foreclosed on, losing their houses, and apartments and rental property became a good market. So, you know, it, it those last couple of years to get out of some of these deals forced me to be um, creative more than anything else. Uh, some of the things that didn't sell, I put tenants in them, and then I sold it to an investor as opposed to a you know a primary um, household. So. You know, there was some really tough times and, and very trying, um, especially at a, a business partner, very trying on our partnership. Um, but, you know, I look, I can look back now, of course, and say there, there were challenges, but I think it was a, a great school of hard knocks, couple of years of education to go through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet you pulled out of the market right when uh, you know a lot of folks were kind of diving in and buying a lot of things because you know when the when the market hit the bottom in 2009 yeah. I, you know I, you're you're in florida so the the numbers wouldn't have been the same but you know we were able to buy like fully fixed up rental properties here for 15 20,000 dollars if we could find the money to do it right yep. because the bank wasn't lending any but yep. but uh, you you sort of pulled out and went a different direction there for a while I, I did, and I think because the market had beat me up pretty well, um, and, and honestly, I, I, I earned a, 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 real estate was good to me. I mean, I'll be honest. The industry at the end, um, over I look at the history that I did in the uh, in eleven years of investing, it allowed me to to go to school for four years full time. It allowed me to cover expenses related to you know long term retirement and college tuition, and it allowed me to pursue my dream. Uh, so, you know, overall, the industry was was really was really good. I'm a big fan of it. That's why I continue to invest now these days in it. So, uh, even though there was some tough times and it was quite a ride, uh, the overall the industry was, was quite good. Now, uh, I'm going to give you a phrase. I love this phrase because it, it's from Warren Buffett, who is one of my favorite investors. And he says, "When people are fearful, it's time to be greedy. And when people are greedy, it's time to be fearful." So you just talked about 2009, some phenomenal opportunities with rental properties. Yeah, that's when everybody was afraid of the market, and that's when the best deals were out there. And that's when it was time for people, if you had the money, to go out and be greedy. So in hindsight, yeah, I'd like to acknowledge I probably missed the butt, the, uh, the the ride there because 2009, I should have been I should have been stockpiling rental properties, um, but. Um, you know, you just you keep an eye on the market and you try to find the opportunities before they become uh, inundated with other investors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A question yeah. here that came in via email from Jeff in Baltimore. He says, I would like to get Scott's perspective on looking back how he would have reduced his risks on the deals that he was still doing when he knew that the market had probably topped out. So you shrink your. T- this is something I've thought about. So it's a it's a good question. How could I have not exposed myself to as much risk? And um, the exposure side is time. And had I been able to reduce the time that I was in a project, I could have. Uh, you know, then the market 
was collapsing over you know a period of 18 months, if I was only in the project for three or four months while the market was going down, I could have mitigated some of that loss. I could have built that into the you know the model you use to analyze your deals. Uh, I was in deals that were 18 months long, you know, new construction and land subdivision, and you know, it, it, with that kind of a time frame, you have no chance of mitigating your loss, and you're just in it for the long run. Um, so, you know, looking back, if I could have gotten into, so just because the market was, was starting to lose some of it there, it didn't mean I needed to get out of it. It mean it meant that I had to buy right and buy with a shorter time cycle. If I could have bought a little house that I could flip in 90 days and build in a little bit of a depreciation factor, I think I could have made money that way. Um, so that's, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think, Time is a big part of mitigating that risk when the market is either flat or is losing some of its air. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, a, a little aside, because this is, uh, you know, again, this this book you've written is three hundred and eighty-eight pages long, so it's it's you know it's quite a. Uh, uh, a lesson with a lot of you know things thrown in about you know advice about financing and tax liens and all sorts of things. Your IRA did okay during yeah. all of this, yeah, and still does. Um, so I know you've uh, talked about self-directed IRAs in the past. I'm a big fan of self-directed IRAs, and um, I owned property in the IRA. I've lent out as a hard money lender through my IRA. Um, I own a piece of land down here in the IRA. So, yeah, the IRA has done really uh, stable. I mean, and, and I'm not looking to, to knock the, uh, you know, knock it out of the park. My IRA is meant to grow at 16 to 18% every year. You know, and given the law of 72, you know, that doubles every, every five, every four and a half to five years. So my money, if I can double it every four and a half to five years in that IRA, um, is done, has done fairly well. Yeah. So the book, I, you know, the book's probably like nothing else out there. It's not a how-to guide, yet it answers all of the questions of how I did it because I was writing about it as I was doing it. You know, it's uh, it's not a guru book. It's just a just a memoir, just a daily diary of the decisions I was making all along the way. How I raised money when I went to the bank. I would take notes. How did the meeting with the bank go? What were they looking for? How much collateral? What were their rates? And so the book is a little different. Like you said, it's 395 pages, 94 pages of, of um, really information uh, written in a very easy-to-read kind of format. So, yeah, that was a passion project for me. <laughs> uh, we need to take one more quick break. Uh, we're talking today to Scott Benjamin, author of Writing the Bubble. And if you'd like to talk to Scott, you can do that by calling 877-772-9658 or by sending an email through our website, realliferealestate.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is Scott Benjamin. He's written a book called Writing the Bubble, available wmkvfm.org. Click the Amazon button and then put in Writing the Bubble. And it's a memoir of what happened to him from 2001, really through 2010. I mean, the, the, the last deal in this book, I think, actually wraps up in 2010, does it not? It does. That's right. Yep. And that was that was a big one. That was the big one. That was the one I was holding out for. But, uh, yeah, everything from a single house to rentals, tax certificates, vacation rental property. I tried a couple of those on a lake in Virginia. Um, 
Yeah, apartments, um, an office building, uh, land subdivision, a little bit of everything in there. It's kind of a smorgasbord mm-hmm. of uh, real estate deals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about those vacation rentals. Yeah. <laughs> because we get, we get, we get questions a lot here on real life real estate. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about investing in this property in Florida or, uh, you know, as you said, on a leak somewhere or something like that. That's a pretty specialized business. How did that, how did that go for you? Yeah. Always curious. You know, every time I go on vacation with us, with the family, we rent for a week and it always seems like we're paying a lot of money. And then you start to think, should I be looking at uh, buying one instead of uh, coming as a rental? And then I can rent it when I'm not using it. So uh, I'm a firm believer that the best way to learn it is to jump in with both feet and try it yourself. So um, there was a lake in uh, Virginia. I had a friend that lived down on Smith Mountain Lake, which is uh, just outside of Roanoke, Virginia. Beautiful lake. And he found a really solid opportunity there. And I think the the thing I didn't realize at the time when I got in is that the season is really short. It's a 12-week season. You really rent during the summer when everybody's on vacation. Now, what you what I was trying to do, especially with these mid-Atlantic re, you know rentals, probably down to North Carolina where you you get a little bit of a shoulder season. You can rent for a few more than the 12 weeks, maybe get 14 or 15 weeks, or if you if you're lucky, you may get some Christmas rentals. But with the 12-week rental season, you have to essentially be able to pay all of your expenses for a month with what you rent the property for for one week. And after paying the management company. Um, it was, uh, we were losing money every month and we knew that going into it. We were really buying it for the appreciation as well. Um, but it's, it's not something I'm going to rush out to do again. So I bought two of them down there and we had them for probably three to four years and, uh, we had no problem renting them, but the numbers, uh, you know, we were losing anywhere between 10 and $15,000 a year. On the, on the rental. And we got, you know, the luxury is we did get to use it for one week a year, but that's an awful expensive uh, vacation for the family. <laughs> so, um, now that whole, so, look how much we're paying for a week thing doesn't look so bad, does it? Yeah, right. <laughs> right, right. And, and we're, we're renting and we're handing back the keys versus, you know, the traditional fixing water heaters and replacing cushions on the sofa. But uh, So if someone were to approach me with a question on that, I would say that really do the due diligence on the numbers. Um, you know, the longer the season you get, the more likelihood you'll have to at least break even. Um, you know, and that may be someone's goal. If they can break even on it on an expense um, format, then they get the luxury of using it on the off weeks and then um, getting some appreciation. So it's it's understanding what your motivation is. Uh, for me, I like cash flow positive investments. So it didn't meet my criteria but I know a lot of people that have owned uh, really nice homes in Ocean City, Maryland, or up in the beaches in Delaware, or even down in Florida, Vero Beach, where they're getting cash flow positive and appreciation, and they've, uh, you know, they've got some solid investments. But I would, I would really spend the time figuring out what the overall gross rents could be on it for a year, and then figuring out after management expenses and after repair and maintenance expenses what you think your expenses are. And then determine just again what your what your motivation is for buying it. If it's to use it for seven weeks that it's going to be vacant a year, then losing the ten thousand dollars a year may not be that bad. If it's for appreciation and you're you're buying right and your timing is good, then that might be a win as well. But um, for me, I would trade cautiously going into another one 
um, knowing what I what I learned from from doing it in Virginia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So today you are working at a university. You're teaching entrepreneurship and strategy. Yeah. Yeah. What What do you tell your students about the real estate market? Well, I uh, the, I told you I did seven houses last year. Um, I did those with students. Um, you know, when I was in college, I think what I what I missed was the real life, per, you know, perspective. You know, we learned textbook and theory. And um, going back to get my degree and become a professor, I really wanted to teach people um, how things work in the real world. So. Um, all seven of those, I had students that I, I taught them how to do real estate and analysis. I taught them how to figure out what the fair market value is. Um, they found the properties. They We went out and we looked at them. They learned negotiation. So when we negotiated with the seller, we talked about motivation and negotiation. Um, one or uh, actually two of them learned how to general contract the deal. They were they were talking with the painter and they were scheduling the roofer and uh, the handyman. They learned some incredible lessons on managing subcontractors. Um, and you know, and these are twenty one year old college seniors that are just getting a phenomenal education. Um, so yeah, they uh, the students really took that and loved it. That's the favorite part of everything I teach is learning how to do deal analysis and. Um, so I work real estate in quite a bit. I taught an MBA class last year, and we analyzed the uh, a, a hotel that was located in Melbourne, and we did a case study on it. And you'd have to completely gut it, fix it up, put a new brand on it, and we analyzed it from a cash flow perspective. We did an internal rate of return perspective. So we took a lot of these theories that they would learn in the textbook, but they were at the site taking photos. We ended up submitting a bid on the hotel for 1.9, and it ended up going for 2.6. Um, it was obviously somebody with deeper pockets that was willing to take a little more risk. But um, what a phenomenal experience for, for all of us, especially the kids, uh, learning how to do a real-life analysis. So um, that's I enjoy teaching. It's really a passion. And uh, to see these kids, see the light bulb go off um, is great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What would have to happen in the real estate market for you to start worrying about another bubble? Like, like what signs would you see that would make you say, uh-oh, better pull back again? Uh, you know, the traditional metrics that you'll get off of a, a multiple list service, the, the average days on market. Uh, you know, when you see that, uh, you, you quoted the statistic of uh, average appreciation from year over year. Well, right now... In the county that I'm in, in Florida, you know, the appreciation was 11% this year over last year. So when that number starts to work its way from 11 to 9 to 7 to 5, and when the average time it takes me to sell a product goes from, you know, 35 days to 75, 95 days, uh, you really have to stay, you have to be a little bit of a statistics junkie. Do um, you have to keep your eye on some of those key indicators like days on market and average appreciation. And as those things slow down, um, that's when I begin become a little concerned. Uh, right now, all trends are positive. Every indicator that I track is positive in, in the area I'm in. It's obviously very specific about where your listeners are in the country, but um, all indications are positive right now. So I would I would really keep an eye on days on market, average sale price, appreciation rate. Um, And I would do it quarterly. I mean, I wouldn't wait for an annual report to come out. I would do it quarterly. 
and then, you know, go from there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Any last advice in the last 30 seconds here for folks who are thinking about getting into the market right now? Uh, to, to, to tread cautiously. You know, the opportunities aren't going to go away tomorrow. Um, if you're unsure, uh, you know, go to sites like yours and educational products that you offer. You really got to spend some time learning it. Um, and, you know, invest a little money on one, into, in, into your MBA kit or one of your kits that will give them at least the education side. And then I think your timing is good. I think now is not a bad time uh, to start investing. Okay. Very good. Appreciate uh, your words of wisdom and lengthy positive and negative experience here in the real estate market. I've <laughs> uh, been talking today to Scott Benjamin, author of Writing the Bubble, available on Amazon.com through WMKVFM.org. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.